This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Welcome back. There has been just one case, one alleged crime, which has dominated the Australian consciousness this week. The alleged murders of a couple, Jesse Beard and Luke Davies, by another man, Beau Lamar Condon. Good evening. An active New South Wales police officer has been charged with the murders of a former Channel 10 presenter and his boyfriend in Paddington. Beau Lamar is accused of shooting Jesse Baird and Luke Davies with his police-issue firearm. And tonight, there's a major search underway to locate their bodies. An accused killer's final... A double homicide in Jesse's home, in cold blood, with a gun. That gun was police-issue. Mr Lamar Condon is, or was, a serving New South Wales police officer. And Jesse Beard was allegedly his obsession. A love interest spurned, which has allegedly turned into the unthinkable. Add in Mr Beard's burgeoning television career and Mr Lamar Condon's previous life as a celebrity blogger and selfie collector, and you have a case which has captured the nation's attention for many reasons. Covering that case for the Seven Network has been senior reporter Robert Avadia, who has been good enough to join us for this special bonus episode of Caught in the Act. Robert, thanks so much for sparing us this time in uh, such a busy week. My pleasure. So let's let's start at the end, if we may. Yesterday, uh, Tuesday, was the crucial day which finally saw the bodies of Jesse and Luke discovered in a location way south of Sydney. So um, talk us through, if you can, how that morning and afternoon unfolded. Well, it, it was it was out of the blue, um, certainly uh, for um, the media and everybody and, and, and for the police too. Uh, when you wake up yesterday, uh, the police had had a very, very tiring day the day before. They were confident that the men's bodies would be found in the Bungonia area. They were very, very confident that Bolamar Condon had been there and had tried to submerge the bodies, but equally, they were confident he had sought to move the bodies too, and that was the great unknown. Um, where had he moved them to? How far could he move them? Um, they were um, tracking his uh, movements, um, I guess, contemporaneously through through phone towers and phone pings and uh, seeing exactly where he was. They had a degree of information from people, uh, from uh, one woman who was with him um, at the time, but was clueless as to what was happening. But at the end of the day, they don't know, they didn't know where he had moved them to. Mm-hmm. Now, you get to about mid-morning or so, and uh, Sasha Palazzo, a de- detective sergeant who drives the investigation, and her boss, uh, Detective Inspector Glenn Brown, had a meeting with Bolamar Condon at Silverwater Prison uh, in the heart of uh, Sydney. And Lamar Condon allegedly was very remorseful, I'm told, mm. and wanted to say exactly where the bodies were. Uh, it was difficult uh, inducing that from him. They weren't allowed any phones in there at the time. So um, he had to point on a map and they had to use a bit of guesswork. And ultimately, it proved not only fruitful, but his description was allegedly very, very accurate. Mm. Um, and they found the bodies. Um, the, the crushing pressure on the investigators to be able to do that. 
um, you can't even imagine with all the media glare, with so much at stake for the families, um, for police, they were so confident of, of their case. It wasn't about that. It wasn't being able to shore up the case. It was about um, providing more answers for the families and getting that result. Um, and they did. Mm. And even on this side of the country, Robert, um, you could tell the intensity of the investigation, the intensity of the headlines. And then watching that press conference yesterday, you could just tell by the faces of the investigators and the senior New South Wales police uh, brass that were there that the toll that it had taken on them just in, in 10 days or so. Yeah, correct, correct, and and it's 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 an emotional toll and genuine fatigue. Mm. Um, the the early days after a homicide are absolutely crucial, um, and they were also in a position where they wanted to find the bodies, and they did not want to be in a position where they had to do a deal with the alleged devil. Mm. Uh, they didn't want to perhaps uh, offer inducements to him to say where the bodies were. They wanted to find the bodies outright. Um, uh, on their own steam. So there was enormous uh, pressure to do so. The clock was ticking. You've got uh, people like me who are a pain in the neck uh, <laughs> trying to you know, make calls, but, but in my position, you do it very, very strategically. Mm. You, you, you don't spam the, the, the phone, uh, firstly, because you don't want to be um, uh, angry and they say, well, they've got a very important job to do, but you also have to realize they've got a very important job to do. Yeah. So um, you, you, you let them go about uh, doing that. Um, you've got uh, a crazy amount of, of speculation from police officers. I mean, they, are, they are, have been more captivated by this than anybody because we're talking about something historic here. We are talking about a police officer using his police 40 caliber Glock to shoot civilians rather than use it to protect them. So... Everybody in the force was talking about this, the police group chats and all sorts of crazy information flying to me and no doubt other journalists too. So sorting out fact from fiction uh, in this high-pressure investigation has been very, very difficult. Mm. And that's obviously, as you've touched on, quite quite hard for you as well to to distill fact from gossip from because as as we all know when in the in the crime game lawyers gossip police gossip journalists gossip and uh, sometimes some of it's good mail but a lot of the time it is just that gossip so just sifting through it to know what's what's what to believe is um you know you've been under pressure this week too yeah, you are, but but I mean, you you also have your own reputation not only as a journalist but as a news organisation. Uh, and you look at the at the sewer that is that is social media these days, and and what uh, people would suggest is fact, and what people would purport as fact, and, and and it's it's so destructive. So more than any other time I can remember in my career, it's so crucial to get it right. It always has been. That's that's what every journalist I know strives to do is to get it right um, but you really need to separate yourself from 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 gossip from speculation um, there is a temptation to run a certain line because it's good and it sounds right mm -hmm. but unless you get 100% confirmation and often uh, a reaffirmation of that from a second source um, you will just sit on it uh, because ultimately it's destructive to the investigation. It is destructive potential witnesses to, to hear a version that is wrong and that might influence their own minds. Mm. 
and it's destructive to the to the families yeah. as well. Uh, when you know they see the news and they complain to the investigators, hey, we see more information in the media than what you're telling us, and sometimes that information can be wrong. So you've got to be very very careful. Yeah. So to recap briefly on the timeline of this alleged brutal crime, Jesse Beard and Luke Davis had not long been a couple, but social media posts from both since Christmas showed them as what they were. Young, handsome, happy and seemingly in love. Their last post together was the pair of them both dressed in pink as they saw pink in concert. But from a week last Monday, there were no more posts and no more sightings. Although there was a triple zero call from Jesse's phone and some strange messages as well, including one to a friend claiming he was moving to Perth. On the Wednesday, a sinister discovery. Bloodied items in a skip bin which did not belong there. Bloodied clothes, a mobile phone, credit card and an $8,000 watch, which sparked grave concerns. And Robert, you reported last night that the initial theory was that Mr. Baird might have been a killer and Mr. Davis the only victim. Correct. Um, And look, theory is putting it strongly. Police are starting completely cold. They cannot eliminate anything until they eliminate it for sure. So they have to keep all lines of inquiries, the vernacular, open at all times until a line closes. And when that closes, they move on to the next one, and then it narrows and narrows and narrows. And and initially, that was a line of inquiry, mm-hmm. that, that Jesse Baird had killed Luke Davies. Um, it was a reasonable one in the circumstance for police to take. Um, but then when you discover um, uh, both missing and uh, items of clothing belonging to each man and they're bloodied, uh, and things just don't start to look right, you are looking at possibly a double homicide. Mm. Um, and police go from there. So th- I think there was a, a question uh, at the press conference a couple of days ago, whether, was it unfair for police to initially suspect uh, Jesse Baird? Well, no, it's not. It wasn't at the time. Pol- police don't know his background immediately. They don't know what he's capable of. Um, but it's only by following the evidence, which they do so professionally, that they reached not only the correct conclusion, but in this case the correct result. Mm. And in following that line of inquiry, they spoke to um, friends and obviously family of of both men, and it quickly became clear that they were both missing. Um, But is it true that Mr. Lamar Condon's name came up quite early in their conversations with with people who knew Mr. Baird in particular? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And there's significantly more that police would know about that that will no doubt be... um, form part of a a brief of evidence down the track. Um, But sometimes police, rather than go on uh, a fact, can also have to go on on, on their guts, on an instinct. And when people are talking about somebody who was alleged to have stalked him, is alleged to have have made him feel uneasy and, and uncomfortable, and at the same time, people are saying, Jesse Baird would not hurt a fly. He is the loveliest person in the world, which is universally the opinion we've been getting for the past nine days. Police then start to form a bit of an opinion. And they start to look at their suspect 
And then they start to look at the movements of the suspect going forwards and backwards. Where is he now? Why is he doing what he's doing now? Could he have done this? Let's track his movements backwards. Mm. And you can imagine already in the heat and the heart of a major investigation, they're then getting information that a serving police officer is is potentially a person of interest because of stalking behavior it's it's it it is alleged that that was that was what was happening correct and and look new south wales uh, police individuals and any police officer in, in in any state in australia and across the world can can be brutal they can be overly aggressive um in an arrest uh, they can be thuggish, but generally speaking, the vast majority of officers are in it to protect the public, to try to do the right thing. And there are enormous oversights uh, on police to do the right thing. So they're constantly looking over their shoulder because they, they want to avoid even the perception of uh, wrongdoing. So for this to, to be uh, really historic, in a sense, that a police officer who is issued a Glock pistol and is allowed to use deadly force to protect civilians for, for him to, to use that in a murderous way and allegedly kill two men um, is absolutely horrifying to every serving police officer. Um, we asked the Deputy Commissioner Dave Hudson if this is unprecedented and uh, he says, I don't think so, but you would have to go back many years. And when I say many years, you're talking 1800s. So, armed with the information from those who knew both the missing men best, they searched Mr Baird's home in Paddington, and the discovery was grim. Pools of blood, staining floorboards, but no sign of either Luke or Jesse. Police quickly focused their attention on Mr Lamar Condon, as did the media, discovering his past life as a celebrity blogger, with his album including snaps with Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, Harry Styles, Selena Gomez and even Kim Kardashian. He had also had an on-off casual relationship with Mr Beard, but... He was now a police officer and had been in the limelight before for the controversial tasering of a prone man which had led to an internal investigation, but no action. Now, another investigation was on and it quickly dug up disturbing details. Robert, as you've mentioned, the most relevant of those being a gun which Mr Lamar Condon had signed out of his suburban police station the Thursday before the shootings. Yeah, it's, and they're entitled to do that. Uh, it's a user-pay system where police are effectively hired to police an event. Now, the most surprising part about this um, is that the allegation will be that uh, Bo Lamar Condon not only signed out his um, police-issued Glock, he did so on a Thursday, allegedly committed the murders on a Monday, and return it on a Tuesday. Mm. So that is five days where a gun is just missing. Mm. My information is that there is supposed to be rigorous inventory um, of those guns. So you're looking at a police area commander or a 24-hour police station. There is a supervising sergeant who is supposed to actually sight the gun, physically see it. Um, that they're supposed to uh, check it off internally on a system, that there's supposed to be that inventory once, sometimes twice a day. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. 
but there is no exception in which a gun could just be signed out for five days and and people are clueless about it. So there's been lots of chat about oversight from Victoria Police in, in this instance about improving the uh, systems of New South Wales Police, but there are some pretty senior police who have been telling me that, that no further oversight, no further checks and balances are needed. The problem here is that the existing checks and balances were not mm. adhered to. Yeah. And just touch on that, a user pays event, um, that, that phraseology is not well known in this, on this side of the country. It, as you say, it's, it's basically um, organisers of events can hire police to, to become sort of extra security or how, how does that work? Yeah, extra security. Um, so uh, it's just not kind of a mercenary force. I mean, they are—they are, they are uh, if, if um, they are entitled to go ahead. You you lodge um, a notice to protest um, that has to be approved, and and it's, it's more often than not approved. But if it's a sort of thing that's going to incur costs to the state. Um, there's a deal done. Well, if this is going to incur certain costs uh, to us, then to a certain extent, you know, you will have to, to, to help pay for that. Um, and, and that's what happens. So you'll have uh, policing. It happens at music festivals too, where the organisers uh, put on a music festival. They're going to make a heap of money. Um, so the police say, well, we're going to have to send police here to police it, to look for drugs and, and any uh, antisocial behaviour. That's a cost to us. That's a cost you will have to bear. Mm. And more questions there about whether it was that that um, security needed to be armed at, at that particular event and, and whether questions should have been asked before he even checked the gun out? Well, no, a, a police officer is a police officer. Now, whether they're on duty uh, as a user pay system or not, they're still on duty. They're still representing the state of New South Wales um, and they are still on duty. So that, that includes... Having a taser for some, um, having a gun for others, um, and being able to meet a potentially uh, deadly threat with deadly force, mm -hmm. that gun. So any officer on duty, any cop, is entitled to have that, though. So I, I don't see that as a, as a potential issue. And, mm -hmm. and here's the thing. When you look at it, uh, we, can, we can micromanage every single thought retrospectively yeah. on what happened here. But the reality is... There are 22,000-odd employees in the New South Wales Police Force. Many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands more over the past century or so, and this has never happened. Yeah. So um, as much as you might say, well, how can we prevent this again? You, you never expect this to happen, ever. After an intense week last Friday morning, Bo Lamar Condon handed himself into the police force he worked for and who were desperately looking for him. What followed were more extraordinary revelations about his movements and his contacts in the days in between. But what did not come immediately was the information police and the families of the two missing men desperately needed to hear. Where were they? And Robert, New South Wales Police have been under enormous pressure in the past 10 days or so. But from this side of the country, they actually appeared to have been as open as they could um, about the progress in the investigation. Yeah, they, they weren't um, initially, but sometimes there are strategic reasons for that. Uh, one, uh, not so strategic, is that they, they don't want to shoot their mouths off without having a, a firmer grasp of the facts. 
Um, so they, they, they don't want to be shooting from the hip, if you'll forgive the vernacular. Mm. Um, but the other one is, especially when uh, Bo Lamar Condon, their, their suspect at the time, is on the run, anything that goes out into the media forces them potentially to change strategies on the run. They would rather control the entire situation, control the ability to bring him in. Um, for instance, uh, reporting that he was a police officer on day one when, when we knew what had happened um, could put um, pressure on him in a way that police uh, don't want, in a way that he could self-harm and police have a duty of care to make sure he doesn't self-harm. Um, but it also could pressure on him to go further underground and and not come in because of the uh, additional pressure also it could force him to come in because of the additional pressure and in this case it it happened but the, the, the thing is it's unpredictable and police would rather it be predictable and that means an information vacuum if they can to be able to control the circumstance and talk us through what we now know about mr lamar condon's alleged movements between what we now know as shots being heard by neighbours on the Monday morning and his surrender on the Friday. Yeah, it, it's quite extraordinary and, and quite erratic. And yeah. it was really a few days uh, that he was able to, to get away with being able to move without any direct suspicion of him. So we're talking about um, shots having been heard by neighbours at 9.50am. And I know people throw their arms up in the air saying, well, why didn't they say something? People's natural inclination is not to think it's gunshots. They're going to think that it's it's a balloon. It's a it's a car backfiring. Yeah. It's something like that. And Particularly in Paddington in Sydney, right? Where that's, yeah, that's quite a well-to-do area. Yep, in a very, very built-up area. Um, and people will feel guilty that they didn't initially uh, report that. But it's only subsequent when the investigation became known that people then came forward and said, yeah, I thought I heard gunshots at this certain time. That time was 9.50 a.m. on the Monday. 9.54 a.m., there was a triple zero call made from Luke Davies' phone. It was very, very brief. Nothing was said. But those two events seem suspicious, obviously, subsequent to the mm-hmm. fact in the mm-hmm. days after. But at the time, you've got gunshots that aren't reported to police. And separate to that, you've got a triple zero call where nobody says anything at all. And that's all police had. So there was nothing overtly suspicious at that time. It is when the bloody clothes were found on the Wednesday, that is when police had very heightened concerns for both men with IDs also um, linking both men uh, to that Paddington Terrace. So then police go to the terrace, police door knock neighbours, neighbours say, yes, I heard gunshots. And that's when police hear, and they think we've got a problem here. So that is on the Wednesday. Meanwhile, on that very day, the police have found the bloody clothes and they're going to the Paddington Terrace. Bo Lamar Condon is going with an old school friend towards the Goulburn area, south of Sydney, a couple of hundred kilometres, probably most of the way between Sydney and Canberra, to a place called Bungonia. Mm -hmm. Now, police were very confident subsequently that he had gone there, but on that Wednesday, he was going there with an old school friend and his behaviour was erratic and confusing. He had gone to a property. He had uh, told her, his old school friend, just to wait for a bit at the top gate. He had purchased an angle grinder 
from the local Bunnings at Goulburn, as well as a replacement padlock, had accessed the property. He disappears for half an hour. Meanwhile, the friend is wondering what's going on and must surely be getting suspicious about something by now. Beau Lamar Condon returns. They drive back to Sydney. Now, Beau Lamar Condon is now uh, paranoid about what his friend is thinking. Mm -hmm. So he thinks, I'd better go back and do a better job of this. Purchases some weights, from what I understand, at Moore Park Supercentre in the eastern suburbs, returns to the area in Bungodia, moves the bodies, then drives to Newcastle to visit a friend. Now, the information is also out in the media. Police are putting out appeals. He is known to be the person who's being looked at, and the pressure is building. He stays at a friend's house on the Thursday. Uh, we broke the news a couple of nights ago. Her name is Renee Fortuna. She's a former cop. And it's my information that he made alleged admissions to her mm. and that during that time, she became fearful for her own life. Despite the fact this was a friend visiting her, she's thinking, what if he has a change of heart? Now he's told me stuff, I could be in danger. So she's tap danced her way through throughout that night. She's helped him allegedly hose out the van to clean it forensically. And the second he is taken off at dawn on the Friday on his way to hand himself in, she has called police. She's called police, told them exactly what he had told her, where he was going. And despite the fact he was planning to hand himself in, there was an immediate reaction from New South Wales police. Highway patrol rushed up the freeway between Newcastle and Sydney, even thinking at one stage to deploy road spikes just to stop him. Mm. Instead, they surveilled him going to his uncle's home mm. and he drove with his uncle to the police station where he was subsequently arrested and charged within a couple of hours. And the the normal sort of logical thinking would be you if you if you knew you were on the run or if you knew you were a suspect in a double murder case and the whole of New South Wales police are looking for you you wouldn't necessarily go and um pick up a friend and then go to Bunnings and then drop in on another friend on the way through but the word erratic you've used this several times and it, it it becomes obvious when you see it from the outside that i mean he he must have just been spiraling at at that point by the by the by the sound of it and just 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 you know desperate to avoid the inevitable by the sound of it a hundred percent a hundred percent but but the, the fact remains um, as much as he kept backing himself into a corner you've now got one acquaintance who can describe his odd movements in bungonia and suspecting something you've allegedly got another friend to whom he's made confessions as well and that is a former cop mm. He was done, and and you could argue he knew he was done. So then becomes the pressure just to find the bodies. Police were supremely confident of their case, but they needed to find the bodies. And at that point, um, you cannot speculate what was in his mind at the time as he's sitting in a jail cell, but I, I think it's a fair guess that what he would have been speculating is that I will spend the rest of my life here. Mm. There is a, a law in New South Wales uh, that was introduced, no body, no parole. If you're convicted of murder and you will not reveal where the body is, it's a life sentence. And he would have known that and police would have been pressuring him with that. And they also would have known just how strong the case was, that a conviction was highly likely. So 
it could be through some small act of mercy that he has revealed where the bodies are, but it also could have been self-preservation that he knew, you know, that that this is not looking good for him at all. That he will at least try to cut some time off a possible sentence. But again, this is all speculation and. As absurd as it is, we're talking about an alleged confession here and, and, and saying specifically where the bodies are, he is still entitled to the presumption of innocence because that's the way our, our law works. Absolutely. The eventual appearance of New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb at a press conference brought various headlines, including her use of language about the alleged murders. This is a crime of passion, we will allege. It is domestic-related, we allege. She later apologised for those words, sort of, when she said they were meant to convey the crimes as domestic and not a gay hate crime. And then yesterday, in the press conference announcing that the bodies of Jesse and Luke had been discovered... But I'd like to say also that uh, this information did come with the assistance of the accused, for which we're very grateful, and I'm sure the families are very grateful. Robert... That wording has drawn more criticism from some quarters today. How have you seen the performance of Commissioner Webb in the past week? And do you think the criticism of her has been fair? In all honesty, I, I think the criticism has been fair. Uh, I, I really do. Um, and I had a, an icy exchange with her a couple of days ago when I suggested there were questions over her leadership. Uh, she snapped back that it was an offensive suggestion. Um, and she Hate gave her is answer. going to hate, she said. Well, that, that was that was the following day on uh, on Seven Sunrise, which which again drew drew more headlines. Uh, but this is not about uh, hatred. This is not about uh, agenda driven journalism or having an axe to grind or not liking her personally or being in the camp of some police officer who doesn't like her. It's none of that. Our job as journalists is to reflect uh, the opinions and the statements of those who cannot make public statements themselves. And I was overwhelmed with messages, as were other seasoned uh, journalists, from cops who are saying, where is our leader? Where is the leadership? Mm. Um, So it was reflecting that sentiment. And then you leave it up to commentators who can commentate. Journalists can't give opinions, but but commentators certainly can. Um, And it was a free-for-all. And that free-for-all wasn't just having a go at her choice of words. And unfortunately, Karen Webb is not a, a wordsmith. It was having a go at her choice to say nothing for three, four days, Mm. not only this time, but also with the alleged tasering to death of a 95-year-old woman Mm. from a New South Wales police officer last year. Mm. So there's no mandate that says a police officer, the police commissioner, has to stand up immediately after something. But these specific instances were not just allegations of police brutality or police going too far. They are outrageous Mm. and they undermine confidence in the New South Wales police force. That is a very, very big deal, undermining confidence in every police officer by virtue of the behaviour of one of them. And that is the leadership that people suggest were lacking, that she needed to stand up, stand up immediately and talk about it. Mm. What do you think her future looks like? I think it's pretty bleak, to tell you the truth. I think she's very decent. Uh, I think she is very, very hardworking. Um, 
And uh, I think she's deserved to rise to the position where she is. But unfortunately, when you're in the position of police commissioner, if you can't sell the message, no matter how good a cop you are, then you're going to struggle to hold on to that job. Mm. So uh, I suspect uh, her future is, is hanging in the balance. I don't think uh, she will suffer the indignity of being sacked, certainly in the short term. Um, I think if something happens, it'll be more medium term where perhaps, and again, I'm speculating, perhaps uh, the New South Wales Premier Chris Minns has decided it needs somebody who can sell the message a bit more uh, and is more articulate uh, and is seen as more of a leader. So it may well be in June, July, we hear an announcement from Karen Webb that uh, that she's had enough and she wants to move on to uh, to other projects, etc. and somebody else might... Uh, take the helm, uh, despite the fact in the background she's been given a bit of a prod. Now, that is a possibility, but at the same time, uh, she can redeem herself by changing her style somewhat. But I can tell you, as an absolute fact, in terms of the optics, there is no way, despite his public support, that the Premier Chris Minns can like what he's seeing. And in your reporting last night, um, you made special mention of another female officer who's been at the, the tip of the spear of Strikeforce Ashfordby, um, Sasha Pinatza. Tell us something about her, because she looked um, tired, emotional, but um, satisfied at a job well done when I saw her on the news last night. A hundred percent. And uh, look, it, it is... It is, and this is this is, you know what? This is reflected in a in a comment made to me by an inspector today that all of the New South Wales Police Force did everything they can, from from the personnel, senior constables, people searching on the ground, intel, detectives, everybody, because they were so ashamed that the allegation is that one of their own had done this, that the efforts put in were quite extraordinary. And, and, and Sasha was at the vanguard of that. You have a homicide commander who oversees the entire squad. You have inspectors who have individual teams um, of detectives. And you have the detective sergeant, which is Sasha, who drives the entire investigation. She, she runs things by the inspector, but this is her baby. Her ideas, obviously bouncing off other people as well, um, but she put in more work than anybody. She had hardly slept. She said she had hardly eaten. And, and my, probably my, my favorite thing she said yesterday was that she had had no media training because that's such an important you know, aspect of policing these days when you front the media to be polished and to know what to say. That made her so much more real. Mm. Uh, she wasn't spinning out lines uh, of what she's been taught to say. She was a real human being, being who, who had undergone a horrific seven days of work under intense pressure, not only to get the result, not only to find the bodies, but being answerable to the public, the fact that the accused was a cop as well. And she came up with the goods and she was able in tandem with her boss, uh, Inspector Glenn Brown, to get an alleged confession out of their man. Uh, and, and that's why she deserved the public acclaim. And it was, it was fantastic to see uh, one of the worker bees, the driving force behind the investigation, actually stand up and have a real moment, a human moment, and describe it. And yes, yeah, she was emotional. She was emotional because she was tired, but above all, she was emotional that after all of that pressure, they got him and they got them. 
As Robert just said, yesterday it was Sasha Pinatza and a colleague who placed a computer in front of Mr Lamar Condon and his new lawyer in an interview room in Silverwater Prison. Mr Lamar Condon allegedly pointed to a road in Bungonia and police were there within two hours. There they found two bodies secreted in surf bags covered with debris. Those bodies were moved to a mortuary overnight and post-mortems will now take place imminently and crime scene investigators remain at spots all over Sydney today. Robert, I guess the investigators can today uh, at some point take a deep breath and then, well, as, as any investigator knows, the real work starts to try and make a watertight case against Beau Lamar Condon. Correct. Well, it's from, from outward appearances, it is seeming like a watertight case. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got an alleged confession. Um, only the killer, you could argue, would know exactly where the bodies were and the fact that, 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 that where they were found is exactly where he said. These are all watertight things. But you also have this cute little thing called the justice system mm-hmm. where it may well be decided by a clever lawyer one day that perhaps the, the alleged confession wasn't done by the book or there was some tick that wasn't done in a, in a checkbox somewhere. Um, and the alleged confession might be ruled inadmissible. So police can't just think, OK, we've got our guy. He said it you know, let's sit on our laurels. Now they have to firm up absolutely everything. Yeah. Uh, they have to firm up all the forensics. They have to firm up uh, the, the, the data from his phone, uh, his movements, to marry up parts of his statement to them uh, with actual fact. For example, he might have described the colour of the surfboard covers uh, in which he allegedly wrapped uh, his his victims, uh, only the killer would know that too. So so there are all sorts of things that police have to, to look at, circumstantial, uh, forensic, and also speaking with witnesses. So uh, there is a lot more work to, to be done, but you are right. You're exactly right in what you said. They breathe a sigh of relief today because the pressure is, is off and most of the result they would like to think is done now comes just the nitty-gritty of firming it all up. Yeah. And Robert, I mean, you've you've one of the most experienced reporters in Australia. One, they're once in a blue moon. These cases come along that just seem to, for whatever reason, cut through to to every level in, in the community. And obviously, the New South Wales community. There's been a lot of anguish about this alleged crime. I mean, New South Wales police have been uninvited <clears throat> to the Mardi Gras, and there's been all the other fallout. But today, after yesterday, is do you feel relief um, in, in in the sort of uh, in the streets of Sydney this morning that that at least these these two young men can now be returned to their family and 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 the alleged perpetrator is behind bars and will be staying there seemingly for a long time? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'd, I'd even say a degree of of, of happiness. Uh, perhaps those closer to the victims won't really be feeling. Uh, any happiness at all for them, maybe it's relief, and I think for others who aren't as emotionally involved, it'd be you know, it's a great result. Um, I was I was personally so happy for the for the investigators, mm-hmm. knowing uh, the pressure they're under and knowing what that meant to them to to have achieved it. I mean, this this is a, this is a real quest for victims' families. Yep. What they do, it's not just about solving a crime. It's it's about the unbearable pain that these families feel and just trying to make it better. Mm. 
and this, that's that's a big thing just to make it a little bit better. Mm. Um, doesn't make it a whole lot better, but it makes it better, and, and that is something that, that the police uh, really care about deeply. And and you're right, it, this this has captured the attention of so many people and. Somebody uh, driving past the Paddington Terrace where I was uh, this morning, you know, Jesse's home, said, uh, what about the Asian family? Uh, and she had a point, and I thought about it. This is a family, an entire family wiped out in a triple homicide mm-hmm. only several days earlier. And that dominated headlines here, too. Um, and she had a point. Why Why this, this outpouring uh, of grief um, for Jesse and Luke and not for the other family. Um, and I thought about it and I think to a certain extent she's right. Uh, but to a certain extent, I think what really grabbed people's attentions here is that it's a cop. Yeah. A cop did this. It, it is it is historic. Uh, and then you see the people um, who were killed and you see those vibrant photos and videos um, and the outpouring of grief from people who loved them and knew them and the, the horrific nature of it. And then the search for the bodies, the search for the killer. Uh, it was, I mean, I, I hate using the expression in any of my journalism, like it was like a movie. Uh, it's it's the, the, the worst phrase there is, but this was, this was, a, this was a, a rolling, you know, thriller yep. for nine days. Uh, and it really captivated everybody. And and uh, and sometimes something just captures people's imagination and, and attention and grief more than others. And, and this was it. Yeah. Well, Robert, thanks so much for sparing some time again on Court in the Act today. And I'm sure we'll follow your reporting of the case as it goes through the courts. A pleasure. Thank you. And thanks again to you all for listening. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with any suggestions by writing to Caught in the Act at wanews.com.au. And don't forget to like and subscribe and tell your mates. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short, get caught in the act instead. See you next week. 